0: Welcome to the Social Behavioral Coffee Hour, the Center for Social and Behavioral Science podcast series at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Our goal is to provide a platform for guests to discuss and explore themselves, their disciplines, and the broader context in which they research, work, and live. This includes the good and the bad, and the beautiful and the messy. We aim to discuss human nature and how to build a better world using behavioral science. And if we can, we'd like to have a little fun along the way. The following is a conversation with Dr. Brent Roberts, professor of psychology at the University of Illinois and one of the world's leading experts on personality and personality change. In this episode, Brent tells the unique story of his journey into psychology. In addition, we'll discuss what exactly personality is, as well as some important cultural conversations around personality and human nature as they relate to narcissism, birth order, and parenting. We'll also discuss personality change and how we can strive to change and be better while also honoring who we are at our core. I'd like to talk a little bit first, Brent, about um, your origin story and how you got started in in psychology in particular and the particular path that you took to get here.
1: I want to go way back, in the wayback machine.
0: Um, Let's go to the way back machine.
1: The way back machine? Okay. Um, let's see. So, oh boy, but you want it succinctly, right? Okay, I'll try to be quick. Um, my original you can take your time idea, where you need to. My original idea, to be honest with you, was to be an architect. Um, when I was uh, a young lad in middle school and the like, I discovered a uh, the distinct pleasure in drafting and and drawing and and buildings and this and, and the like, and, and was um, deeply invested in that and then a bunch of things converged uh, which pushed me into a different path inadvertently Um, so i was born to a a, a, let's call it a conflictual family Um, which of course when you are subject to those types of experiences often does spur the curiosity like why the heck are we like this (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and why are these people not getting along as much as they should Um, and this reached uh, a a peak um, at about age 12, where my, my parents separated, um, and my father deciding to try to get as far away from my mother as possible, ended up in Iran. And so I was abandoned at that point, um, from you know, both psychologically and literally, um, and left without a father figure, and at that point, uh, I found a mentor in the, the person of uh, Jim Hansen, who was a, an english teacher i I use quotation marks around that he was really uh, a new age social scientist um, um, in the guise of an english teacher um, in my high school and he was fascinating because he was interested in all the different things that are going on in psychology at that point this is in the late 70s so we're in a very dynamic period for the social sciences um, and some naive uh, times of course but still kind of fun in the sense of um trying to figure out how people worked and there was a lot of uh, opinions and different perspectives we're still kind of in the psychoanalytic era and then the humanist era he was very much a humanist and he very much taught me that humanism and the idea of the value of a human was was really paramount uh, was a good thing and he, he quickly became my father figure and my my mentor And I abandoned the the architecture path and decided to pursue the architecture of the human mind instead of um, the architecture of buildings. I'm not quite sure whether that was a smart decision, but it was one that I made and it was faithful. And so I spent my high school uh, time investing in that as a possibility. So I actually went to college with a pretty clear view of like, hey, I wanna be a psychologist. At the time I was under the assumption that I would be a clinical psychologist and that my my future would be helping people. I found out along the way that I wasn't very good at helping people. Uh, I lacked some search, certain social skills that might be good. Listening skills are really paramount. I, I apparently was not very good at that. I was told this by a number of people. Um, and I, I decided at, at some point during my college career that I shouldn't pursue that path, um, but I was still curious about humans and still interested in it. And I still very much liked uh, the research enterprise, and I had actually discovered doing research and I was having a blast doing that. And decided, okay, that's that's cool. I can I can. I can give that a try, and I was working for uh, some um, individuals at University of California at San Diego, who are the last bastion of behaviorists. These are the folks who made pigeons peck and rats press levers um, in order to better understand human nature, which there's some irony there, and not actually if you think about humans in some respects. <laughs> um, and it was a dying field at the time, which is a sad thing. Um, not that it was incorrect, not that it's not useful even to this day, but at least in terms of the sociology of social science, it was going away. And so when time came to apply to grad school, they said, hey, you should go to grad school in our programs. The last two remaining were at West Virginia and, and, and Albuquerque. And I was like, that doesn't sound like a good thing. <laughs> so I decided maybe I'll take some time off and and kind of figure some things out. I was a little burned out. Um, yeah, I was working my way through college at that point as a as a waiter. I'd worked at every single restaurant job um, except for being a bartender. Um, by that point, I'd been working in restaurants since I was 13, um, and I paid for my college that way, which at the time, uh, you could pay for your college that way, which you can't do now. And I decided, okay, I'm going to spend a year, get bored, refuel my batteries, um, figure things out. Um, and Seemed like a good plan at the time, and then things re- really went haywire. So the, the wheels fell off the cart big time. On the positive side, I went to work for the Presidential Council on Physical Fitness and Sports for the summertime, which was great. Worked with some amazing people. And you know, but wait, you said
0: you said that the the wheels fell off. Yeah. Um. What What do you mean when you say that the wheels fell off?
1: Well, the plan didn't go as expected. Hmm. Um, so you know, the plan was just to kind of hang out, work in in the restaurants build up some, some capital, um, rethink what I was going to do with my life, and, and still probably go to grad school, but you know, um, try to figure out a better path than, than either clinical psychology or behavioral psychology, and yeah, hopefully get bored. I got bored a little too fast. <laughs> that was the problem. Um, and so you when know, I did this, this summertime job, which was quite inspiring and fun, um, I met a bunch of very impressive and, and uh, important people. And when I got done with the job, about a month later, they called me up and said, hey, we're opening up a line of fitness gyms, Hmm. and we want you to be a manager. And I was like, wow, I'm so flattered I'm this kid, 22 years old or something. And these people want me to be a manager in a new industry that's going to make me six figures, which at the time making six figures was unusual for most people. And so it wasn't something that you would take lightly. I, of course, didn't understand or didn't have the wisdom at that point to know that if somebody wants you and you're young and inexperienced, um, that means they're desperate. (laughs) So... um, I being naive <laughs> to the fact that they were desperate and that I lacked the skills to do this work, I joined up um, and had um, a really bad experience and it was a bad thing in general. So it was an in- interesting um, Uh, business model. They wanted to create the first uh, computerized fitness equipment. It actually eventually kind of started, but I was at the very beginning during all their screw-ups and I was, you know, despite being groomed for a manager, not doing well in the corporate structure, so to speak. And they weren't either. They got shut Hmm. down for a variety of reasons. Um, And then I was at that point left really adrift and I didn't know what to do. So I had lost my focus in terms of like, oh, I'm gonna go to grad school. I should just stay in a restaurant business and be bored. I was like I was very intrigued by the possibility of actually being successful in business. And maybe I should try that. And so I started pursuing activities um, for the next six months, which led to a string of jobs that were all failures. So I tried my hand at, at advertising, I tried my hand at a variety of sales jobs. I had the world's worst job on the planet other than like the hard I, I actually would prefer you know messy hard jobs like you know um picking up trash to the job I had, which was uh, trying to identify sales leads for copier salesmen, where I had to walk into businesses and ask them about their copier needs. And at the time, that was the rough equivalent of a telemarketer. And boy, I got screamed out of businesses left and right. It was a it, miserable exe- experience.
0: It, um, and it I does did, sound like that would that would take some listening skill there. So
1: no, not at all, because you're just being screamed at. I mean, oh. <laughs> for the most part, I
0: mean, you know, well, I mean, the job, I mean, the job.
1: You know, I mean, you. I, I walked into random businesses and strip malls in San Diego and said, "I am Brent Roberts. I'm from uh, Nolta, and I would like to inquire about your copier needs." To which I would receive <laughs> either a look of disdain, um, because I was the fifth person that week to come and do that. Uh, they, right. The sympathetic people would hand me the business card because they knew that's what I was going for and what I needed, and I'd write down no no copier needs. Um, uh, the people who appropriately like us now who get irritated at being pestered uh, you know like now of course the equivalent is my cell phone my best friend scam scam likely calls me twice a day um you know i was scam likely and i was you know, being yelled at by people typically every other uh, shop because they were tired of people like me coming in and at the end of the day i'd give that stack of business cards to the sales rep and yeah you know, hopefully there'd be a, a sales lead somewhere in there it was pretty miserable i would i would highly recommend against it um and then you know I, I went into a string of jobs. I totally lost my perspective. I was desperately trying to be successful in the traditional business sense. And you know, what was <laughs> obvious to those around me was I was miserable. I was failing. Um, I literally needed money and I was not um, happy in the, the work hmm. that I was pursuing. Hmm. And after about six jobs of various sorts, um, my roommate and very good friend took um, some pity upon me and said, ah, I'm gonna get you a job working as a construction laborer with me, <laughs> which is what he was doing at the time. Yeah. And I went to work um, basically moving stacks of wood and trash. And it was a blast. It was awesome. Uh, salve for the wounds that I developed. Uh, and and it gave me some time to, um, you know, recenter myself, think about things and try to figure out what I was gonna do with myself. And at that point I, I figured out, I'd go back to grad school, but I would go to, non-clinical psychology which uh, by definition at that point was personality psychology Mm. the opposite of clinical psychology because it was putatively focused on human potential and and uh, thriving as opposed to um dysfunction Um, right and so i thought that would be a cool thing to do worked a few more jobs so I, I, i i slung steaks and seafood at restaurants and um did what i could um to to build up some resources and head back to grad school. So uh, some of my colleagues are are prone to to say that I'm of their colleagues, uh, the one person with the most different jobs (laughs) of any academic they've ever known. um, Just mostly because of that one year.
0: So it's always really interesting to hear about people who have had these, I mean, really like diverse working experiences because they're not the, they're not guaranteed for, for people who are in academia, you know, a, a lot of folks yeah. kind of don't, don't have those, uh, those really, those experiences. So I, I just wonder, you know, there's always, I think some positive in those. And I, I wonder, like, if you were to look back at those and think about, you know, the value or the lessons that you kind of took away from those, um, w- what would you say the, the value or the lessons of those were?
1: Well, the first one is you know, when, if somebody comes to you and, and they are, uh, of the opinion that you're the answer to their problem, the first question you have to ask is whether they're desperate or not. Um, so that, that's been invaluable for me ever since uh, because you know, oftentimes if you're young and inexperienced or just inexperienced and somebody's saying, hey, you're my person, it just means they've been through 15 people before you. <laughs> and if you say yes, it could be your mistake. So it, it was really good for the humility factor, like teaching me yeah. that I wasn't necessarily the answer or the best of things. Um, and that there were lots of things that I really didn't want to do um, with yes. my life. That was brought for me, like the poignant thing was when I got back to grad school, when I got to grad school, I should say, many of my peers at that point had transitioned straight from their undergraduate programs doing the right thing. They worked in labs and they, right. they did you know their GREs and they did their, their good GPA and they worked their tails off and they got to grad school. And by the time they got to grad school, they were burned out and right. they were uninspired. Um, I got back to grad school and I was like, you're gonna pay me to think this is awesome. You know, I was just, it was so, such a relief. It was so cool. Um, so for me that, that helped tremendously in coming back to that work and trying to, you know, um, I didn't have to try to motivate myself. <laughs> I was inspired by the contrast of the, the work that I had tried. So it was very good from a learning perspective to try those things out and to fail at them, um, in a way that was good. For for teaching me hard lessons. Uh, you know, it's not fun to go through failure. There's no question about that. Um, right. It was good in retrospect, I suspect. Um,
0: I like the fact, it's interesting that you like really wanted to be successful in business and you kept, you know, trying to make that. What was the appeal from your you know, perspective at that point? What was driving you to try to be really good at, at business? We now know that, you know, maybe the academic trajectory may be more conducive to your skill set. But what was the appeal in there for you? Not
1: being poor was a really attractive thing. I mean, I was, you know, I, like I said, I was, I was born to a, a Marine and, a, and an artist. And we, you know, in that hierarchy, we were okay because he was an officer, my dad, um, in the Marine Corps. But in terms of like where I was at when I got to school, oh, I was the mm-hmm. proletariat all over the place. I mean, I worked my way through school. I had my, you know, my best friends were wandering off to Europe to do their year abroad after graduating, or you know, every, they would go skiing every winter, they would do all these different things. And I would go and I'd work a little uh, extra uh, because I needed the money to be able to pay rent. And so um, you know, it's not an enjoyable status. It was also San Diego, which is a very conspicuously shallow culture which valued external signs of success to such a degree that you, it's unavoidable it's a mm. it was a really miserable place this is also the 1980s um, which is you know the the first yuppie movement so to speak and you know it was the the heady the you know, Reagan era when people were you know, focused on filthy lucre and just trying to make a, a a coin and and in san diego that was that was the culture man that's what you you mm-hmm. you, you were doing or trying to do and so the, i think i got lost by by being focused on those things and that was a mistake and it, it doesn't it wasn't my skill set <laughs> it just it simply wasn't um I, you know i, I even on the the sales jobs that I had, I would try to be an intellectual salesperson. You know, I would convince people of the rational reason for doing these things. Trust me, that is not the most effective way to do sales. (laughs) You're going to, you're going to fail miserably if you do that, unless you're in uh, a certain particular niche where it's rewarded. Most places it's not.
0: I see. So, um, I was one of the questions I was going to ask um, was about whether you had, you know, some people talk about having these aha moments where, you know, what they need to do or what their next step is just sort of crystallizes, or they have some really profound moment where, oh, I feel like there's kind of something big here, like, and it really to them, it strikes them, and I, I can kind of think about some of those moments from from my past. It sounds like you had more of a, a steady kind of trajectory where there wasn't like a a huge pivot in any one particular direction but i'm wondering like throughout your trajectory nonetheless did you have moments where just the idea of oh personality psychology it just became crystal clear to you like how cool that was or how moving it was
1: it was never it's not cool now how could i've had that kind of inspiration come on i i take pride in it not being cool I don't want to be cool. That, let's just make that clear. So I, I, I didn't have any epiphanies like that. I mean, I I, I have probably through the dint of time and and um, duress um, grown to love my field and my topic. Um, when yeah. I was first studying it, it was to me. Fascinating, right? Just from the perspective of, hey, you know, one of the stark realities of being a human is that we're not the same, despite all of our desperate efforts at times to make that the case, right? Um, we we really do try to teach people the same things. We try to, you know, get people to conform to our different cultural norms, as the famous Monty Python statement says, you're all individuals. And we chant back. We are all individuals. <laughs> um so I mean, I, I always found it, you know, that idea that, you know confronts us all uh, fascinating like why do you react to things differently than me and what what kind of import does that but it wasn't it was it was kind of a yeah it was an interest i would say it wasn't a passion i wasn't like i'm born to be the personality psychologist um i had a few aha moments that were mild in that
2: in that Hmm.
1: uh, on that scale we're going to measure the aha moment um and and one was funny one was was more poignant so you know like i said i i transitioned back to grad school with a vague idea of what I wanted to do. I was not a typical academic. I didn't have um, the proper training as an undergrad, so I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, They didn't select me for that. And in retrospect, when I looked at what reasoning was behind them selecting me, Um, I spent my first semester in grad school relatively lost. Uh, It was Berkeley. Hmm. Um, Berkeley was so famous for being <clears throat> laissez faire, otherwise known as neglectful, of their graduate program that when I got into the program, friends called me and said, Don't go. <laughs> Those wow. people don't know how to mentor. They, they don't even do anything. They don't supervise you whatsoever, which to, to my mind sounded really cool. Um, <laughs> I was like, really? That's the way to do it? I want that. Um, and so I went there and you know, the experience was exactly as they predicted. You, you got there and, and they were like, you know, read some stuff, talk to us, see if you figure something out come talk to us and <laughs> we'll do some research. Uh, and famously, I, I, I didn't find anybody um, at, at the beginning and I did a lot of reading in the wrong areas and different areas, a lot of sociological reading. I was really interested in the symbolic interactionist for example. And then I saw my my future advisor give a talk And and she was not a a faculty member. She was an adjunct um, because at the time the, the nepotism rules at Berkeley would not allow them to hire the spouses of existing faculty. And she was married to a mathematician. Mm-hmm. Um, and despite being one of the best scholars in the field of personality development, uh, did not have a formal position. She had an informal position, but she still got to do research and she still got to mentor students. And so I didn't quite know who she was at first, but then when I saw her give the talk, I was really excited. I ran up, said, I wanna work with you. And we really did have that you know, moment during the talk, like, well, geez, this is the person for me. She, she studied individual differences. She studied development. Mm-hmm. She studied social roles and how, you know, the. the the society you know creates the institutions for people to enact and that helps the development occur and i was like this is what i want to do Mm -hmm. she looked at me and she said nah
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's a good first start
1: (laughs) she really well famously um one of the more awkward moments of my career is when she received one of the the big awards the jack block award and and she was recount yeah it gives you an opportunity to recount your your career and she was um Saying, oh, and then there's Brent. Because Brent, when Brent you know first ran up to me after a talk and said he wanted to work with me, I looked at him and said, he's far too good looking to be any of any you know, talent. <laughs> and there I'm, I'm in. This room with a hundred of my friends and colleagues, and I was like, that was real. I sank like really. (laughs) So I was really good for like looks and carrying boxes because yeah, I would I would do heavy lifting. Um, But I was not viewed as an intellectual nor a talent um, in my (laughs) graduate career. So I kind of had to convince her um, over time. I wore her down eventually, and she did accept me as a student. And and she was a wonderful and amazing um, uh, mentor. Uh, But I didn't impress very much at the beginning. the second then, aha moment. Oh, sorry. If you wanted to, um,
0: Oh no, I was just going to ask about the the second moment.
1: So, I mean, so, you know, I didn't have the background as a broad thinker in social science. I didn't have good training as an undergrad because I was in this you know, weird niche of, of psychology behaviorism is not very useful in these other areas, social personality and the like. And so I had to kind of, you know, catch up. And so most of my graduate career, I was, uh, just trying to figure out how to do the work and so i would you know what projects should i be working on what skill set do i need to develop and and, and I was kind of nose to the grindstone and not really thinking big picture and i started focusing on personality development and especially personality change and mm. it you yeah, know which was a fun topic because it wasn't one that um many people studied or many people focused on it was anathema to some of the field because a lot of people think of personality as something that doesn't change my advisor was very was one of the first proponents of the of the idea that it does there's a very popular set of researchers at the time who were um, running around saying personality is fixed like blaster it's impossible to change and the like and we were the counter lab that was trying to convince them otherwise and i started working in that area and to be honest with you, really didn't have a big picture sense of what I was doing until three years post PhD. So my first job was at, at the University of Tulsa, a relatively modest um, college slash university in Oklahoma. I uh, moved from the Bay Area to Oklahoma and what I call reverse grapes of wrath, <laughs> And um, set up shop in, in a school that most people thought I would end up at because it was, you know, not a very high status school. Uh, I was told that point blank by some of my, my patrons and advisors. Um, and I finally kind of figured things out about three years in. And I, I don't, it wasn't an aha moment. I describe it as um, surfacing. So, being a, a surfer or as, you know, as, a, as a kid, a lot of times you spend under the water and you're desperately trying to get to the surface because you need to breathe. And, and it felt more like that than an aha moment that I, I finally, after about three years of doing the work, kind of breach the surface and could see the horizon. And I hmm. could kind of see where my work was and what I needed to do to help the field understand what was going on. And that was a great moment in some respects, because it kind of, it really did set the table for the rest of my career. Where it was like, oh, this is what the field doesn't know. This is what could be done to help it You know, understand these issues. Here's the trajectory that we can go on, and for me, that was a a very important moment. Um, And and I have to express gratitude for Tulsa's ability to give me the the intellectual space to do that, which it did, Um, and and time. I don't know if I would have had that insight if I had been someplace that was more stressful, for example, Um, because it was not a place where they were saying you need to crank out your, you know big JPSB papers and and R your your R01s and grants and things, they were like, you got a publication. That's great. <laughs> so there wasn't a lot of pressure and it was actually good in some respects because it gave me a little time to percolate. You know, and, and that was a good moment. Um, but not not an yeah, you know, it wasn't an epiphany moment, I would say. It was more of a surfacing moment.
0: Okay. It's an interesting way to, to think about it. So we, we've we just started talking um, about the idea of personality change. And uh, as someone who studies this, I'm wondering if you can kind of unpack that a little bit. I mean, what is personality and can we change it? And, and why should we care? And what does it mean for us? God, that's, that's like too many questions. It's a lot of questions. And I know I got questions. excited. Interlocutor, <laughs> can we Can we change personality? Of course we can.
1: Now, you nope. need to defi- define what it is. Um, and and that's where, it, it, you know, there are varying opinions, so to speak, in, in the field. Um, it, it's funny because it, uh, often people associate the field with the study of what are called personality traits, the, the big five personality traits. And what are the big? Yeah. Extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, uh, neuroticism, and. Uh, openness to experience. Um, for those of you who are fans of the MBTI, um, that's the four MBTI dimensions plus neuroticism.
0: And um, what is those, the MBTI?
1: The Myers-Briggs type indicator. You Come on, man. Everybody knows what the MBTI is. Everybody hey, our- everybody, everybody, knows what the MBTI is. It's the most popular test um, in existence is used by more companies and businesses than any other. Um, It's usually used as an icebreaker. And there are are books out now lambasting it as evil and this evil empire development stuff. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's just a simple test that they they purged of all negative qualities. And so it's, it's the positive things about extroversion, the positive things about agreeableness, positive things about conscientiousness, positive things about openness under different labels. Um, And those are are typically what we think of when we think of personality. It's not, of course, in my mind, an adequate definition of personality, but I think it's useful to focus on those uh, um, for a couple of reasons. One is (laughs) you have five things, so you can actually write them down on your fingers. Um, And I always like to say that personality psychologists on the seven plus or minus two are on the minus two side of the distribution. And so that way you can actually remember what we're talking about. Um, Second reason why I think well, I mean, one of the reasons why I studied them was not because I thought they were the coolest thing possible. In fact, quite the opposite. I mean, I was, I was in a lab which valued greatly things other than the big five and other than personality traits. So we studied motivations, we studied difficult times, we studied experiences and work and love, you know, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. we were interested in people and humans and how they changed across the life course. And then those that's a relatively dynamic thing, often defined more by our experiences than our personality. But then we were you know, like, okay, what happens you know, when you go to a job? and it's horrible. What does it leave an indelible trace on your character? Hmm. And if you want evidence for the fact that it does or does not, the toughest test you can can run is against personality traits. Because personality traits were assumed by most people to not change. Um, And even within the field, theoretically, they were considered the least changeable. Actually, there's research to back this up that um, the lay audiences believe of all the things we study in psychology that they're the least changeable, which is fascinating, right? Hmm. I have a wonderful anecdote. We, we did a longitudinal study in graduate school of, of Berkeley students and we asked them open-ended questions. And At the end of four years, we said, Hey, how's your personality changed? And one person responded, Well, you know, personality hasn't really changed. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, I've grown. More in myself, more uh, I'm a nicer person. I work harder, and I'm not as neurotic as I used to be. But my personality has not changed. <laughs> huh. And they're, they of course, <coughs> describing change in the Big Five, but in their mind. You know, their personality had not changed. As a scientist, I'm like that's fascinating. By my definition, your personality has changed, and so there's, a, there's some, some something of a discrepancy between how I view things and how other people do. But I think if you take the definition of personality as personality traits, the Big Five, um, they they do change and they can be changed, of course. Whether they can change enough, either for your purposes or your partner's purposes, mm-hmm. is a really good question or your your boss's purposes right um yeah i think based on mostly experience we haven't really done the research to back this up i'd say most of us don't change quickly enough to satisfy our partners or our supervisors (laughs) um that there there, you know obviously is a a, you know an easier route for us to take which is to follow who we are first Hmm. and to hold on to that um, as desperately as possible i mean we've defined i mean if you think about it you've defined your world around your personality if you're an extrovert you've defined your world more around people right
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, or if you're an introvert you've defined your, your yourself around your pets as we were talking about before like mm-hmm. I've got my dogs i don't need anything else uh, a lot of my friends who are introverts have been absolutely unchallenged by the pandemic <laughs> they're like this is great um i am you know, not forced to, to uh, go interact with people um, i have some dear friends and colleagues and you know, in retrospect, I was the one always going in their office. They never came in mine. Hmm. <laughs> and you know, the, the, as introverts, they were like, okay, you know, this is pretty cool. So if, if you've defined your world and structured it around your personality, it's a lot easier to keep it than it is to change it. Right. Um, and so it, it is not the case that I think people um, change willy-nilly. There is a, a cadre of social scientists who don't believe in personality at an intellectual level. Um, they often find explanations for that. Uh, these people are interesting to me because they have to divorce themselves from all personal experience and empirical data to be able to make the claim. But it's a relatively common one in social science, you know, especially if you get out over to the more social social sciences, the sociology folks, the social psychology folks like yourself, who are like our oh, power of the situation, you know, we, we don't need to know about the individual. We just need to know about the conditions they're in, right. um, which is obviously true at some level and completely false at another right it isn't right. like personality it's not a you know perfect explanation of anything it's part of the explanation um and so you know having knowing both is probably much better than trying to emphasize one or the other
0: right um, it it and, does seem like sage advice to to not necessarily be overly concerned because i think a lot of people do have you know, ideas of I want to change my personality, maybe not like tremendously, but I want to become more extroverted. And I feel this way too. Sometimes I think to myself, I want to be, I want to be bolder. I want to be well, you're, you're, more you're,
1: you're, you're in the time I've known you, you've, you started practicing comedy. I mean, that's a remarkable transition mm-hmm. that requires from my perspective, a change, at least in terms of your courage <laughs> um, you know, from an extroversion perspective. I mean, if you, if you were an introvert, you know, it's a tougher road. Um, has that not been uh, pressed to be different in your mind?
0: Well, I I, I don't want to harp on it for, for too long, but actually what, what did it for me was um, a situation. I'd always wanted to try a stand-up comedy, and I'm prefaces, prefacing all this by saying I, I do comedy. This is not to say that I am funny, but I do enjoy the experience. <laughs> that was funny. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> So I, I always wanted to try it when, when I was living in, in Champaign-Urbana. Champaign-Urbana has a, a relatively small, I mean, stand-up comedy scene, um, but I would always go to open mics and I always had a really, really good time and I always wanted to try it. I've always enjoyed uh, speaking and, and teaching were a lot of fun for me. Um, I never got close to trying it in Champaign because I didn't have, for lack of a better word, a system for, for doing it. And then I I recently relocated to Chicago and all of a sudden I found that there were places where you can take a class. So what I did was I just sent the email and put in my credit card information to take the class. And now I'm going to class like every week, I'm getting a soft kind of build up to doing an actual show, but it was, it was too much of a deep dive for me all at once to just go up on stage with five minutes of material and sweat it out and hope to God that I just don't totally bomb. But having the steady buildup of class one, class two, class three, you're getting feedback. It's a supportive environment. And then you go and you do a show. Uh, totally now I can do it very much more rapidly. Um, But I struggled for, you know, years trying to maybe I'll do it kind of muster the courage. But I think that a lot of people do still feel like, you know, I want to try that thing. I want to I want to be a little bit more like this. Maybe it's extroverted. Maybe it's um, maybe it's agreeable. Maybe it's not agreeable. Maybe they want (laughs) to maybe they want to be more assertive. Um, And I, I do still wonder you know, for people who are in those situations, as I feel like many of us are, how, how can you change your personality and how can you kind of keep in the back of your mind? I think, again, what is that sage advice that you offered about you are who you are and you should try to keep that in mind and and, and find the, the joy and love in that.
1: Right. I mean, the first, you know, the first thing you have to do is know who you are. You know, you mm-hmm. can't change yourself unless you have a, a, a good bead on, on who you are. So you know, taking the MBTI or taking a big five measure, talking to a psychologist is a very good thing to find out where you're at. Um, talking to your friends, have them rate you Um, just because it, you know, the first thing you have to figure out is what it is you want and who you are gives you that information. And you, know, you might be mistaken, right? Sometimes people think they want to be, as you said, less agreeable. Um, but what they really want is to be more assertive. You can be assertive without being disagreeable, right? Those are two different things from a measurement perspective. Assertiveness is over an extroversion and you know niceness agreeableness that that's a a different dimension and they can be complementary you don't have to be a dick to be assertive and so some people mistake you know um high agreeableness as being you know um let's say not assertive so first of all is figuring out who you are and then you know i I do think it's important um given the given the nature of human nature which it, it is not this thing that changes overnight um, and it is something that seems to be designed to be what we might call a conservative system. It's still flexible, mm. but it's not um, hugely dynamic, right? Mm. And this is painfully obvious, your your friends and, and family members um, are not being different people on different days. Um, obviously, we respond to situations and the like, but we keep a pretty good core sense of who we are. Much to our frustration, I might add. Oftentimes, we would like people to be different, and they don't change fast enough. Right. So it's there. Right. It's best to deal with that. That that is, I think, a fact of human nature. And then the other fact is that we do develop um, progressively, incrementally over time. Right. And then you know, empirically, we do know, for example, that people do want to change their personality. So we, you know, you're in good company. Um, I've always wanted to be more uh, organized, more conscientious. Uh, I've failed miserably at that. Um, I've, I've, I've figured out strategies um, to adjust for my lack of conscientiousness. It's really good to marry somebody who's more conscientious than you. Just putting it out there. Um, hire people who are better than you at what you you, you need to do. Uh, that has been my my saving grace, um, both with graduate students and people who work for me. You hire people better than yourself you're going to do well, um, and th- that has given me the excuse of not improving my conscientiousness. Um, but nonetheless, you come to situations where you might want to change your personality. I think your anecdote about comedy is is perfect. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, th- there there are direct ways to do this, right? Um, and. You know, you can go out and you can find apps right now, this day, to try to focus on these dimensions, the big five dimensions, assertiveness and conscientiousness and anxiety. If you really want to work on anxiety, go to see a therapist. It works. Um, And you become typically less anxious in that experience. And that's a good thing. No, um, and that's changing your personality. Is it changing it dramatically? No, it's usually ch- you're taking the edge off, right? You don't. T- a good therapist doesn't take somebody from being you know 95th percentile on anxiety to calm and serene. They take them to less anxious and less neurotic, and that might be enough. You have to decide for yourself how much you need to change. Um, so you can do these direct things, but I, I think another feature of human nature is, you know, unless you have a lot of motivation. It's hard to keep those things up. I call these the Duolingo mm. models of, of personality change. Right? You want to learn a language, you know. As you know, the best thing you could do is go someplace, immerse yourself, and just be there. Um, mm. Then you have no choice. You know, <laughs> your motivation is immaterial. Um, but you know, if you if you want to do it on your own, you're doing the Duolingo app. I don't know about you. It's hard. You know, and I've, I've done it for years to try to work, learn Deutsch, um, and it's failed miserably because the motivation is never enough to keep you going. Right? So while while I think it's possible to change personality through these direct means, it's probably not the most effective route, is my my opinion. The more effective route is what you just described, which is find a path that you really like and that you really want to go down for a lot of different reasons. And you might have, let's say, you know, some qualities that lead you in that direction. You are a dynamic and extroverted teacher um when you were in graduate school i remember that as, as who, who are you speaking to right now you were even an award-winning yeah. um the, the teacher by if I, if I, if my memory correct and so it wasn't that you were ill-suited for the role right and so and you were funny um, and so you could go in that direction so you and so it was let's say you know the path was made for you and then if you can find that supportive structure around mm. a path that you want then that's going to put you in a situation where demands are going to be made upon you to be more extroverted, to be funnier, um, to think in that way. But you're you're going to get the support for it, and you're going to get the teaching and the training for it, um, and it and the commitment is easier because you're really into it and you really want to do it. Mm. To my mind. If you want to, you know, change your personality, those are the types of paths you look for. Finding a partner with you who you really want to be with, and if you got, if you're going to be with them, the you know, this is the type of person you need to become. If it's a transformative thing, think differently. If it's like, oh, you know, they want me to be a little bit like that, okay, I can move in that direction because I really want to be with this person or a job that or a career that you really want to do. I mean, like I said, I wanted to be more conscientious. I was. a very unconscientious professor when I first started out, but I really wanted to keep the job. Uh, Mm -hmm. The modal way I was taught how to be a professor and to teach, especially at Berkeley was don't care at all. (laughs) (laughs) I I go to my first class and i say to the class, yeah, okay, it'll be 15 weeks. We'll cover these topics. Uh, Syllabus will be ready in a few days. I don't know. I'll get it to you. And we'll probably have maybe one, two midterms. (laughs) And the students came up and I in droves, individual differences again, probably about five out of 20 came up and would not let me leave the room until I committed to when the midterms were, what format they were going to be and, and what dates they were going to be given on. And I was like, oh, these people, oh, oh, they want structure and they're not going to let mm. me you know, do this without it. And I learned that mm. and it's reasonable that, you know, you can get your act together enough to be able to give people structure. Now, it would be nice if they read the syllabus, but nonetheless, um, you know, I learned to be conscientious enough in that role because I really wanted to stay a professor. I like the job, I like teaching, I like doing research. Um, And so I I moved in a direction. Did I become the the paragon of detail orientation? No. (laughs) Do I do a very deliberate, highly structured um, class? Yes, I can do that. Almost anybody can do that. And so, and that wasn't a big ask. So that, I think that your anecdote about your your route to comedy is a perfect one um, for what recommendation I would give if somebody really wanted to change in a certain direction.
0: Got it. It's also reassuring to me because I, I always think about things and in, in, through the lens of um, I am, I am, I have no control. I have no self-control. <laughs> so, so I like if, if I have like leftover potato chips from like a, a cookout or like a party, like I'll just, I'll just yep. stand at the counter and eat them, man. Yep. Uh, yep. So I need to, the only way the, the, not, I wouldn't say the only way, but one of the best ways that I know to control myself is just, I put myself in situations where it's easier. Right. And I put myself in situations where I have to change or I have to behave in certain ways. But if you just, you know, say, Hey, try to do this and it's going to be difficult. I'm like, well, that is really difficult. I I don't know if I can do that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So we've, we've talked about personality change. I want to hit on a couple of the other, I mean, really interesting ways that our understanding of personality psychology can can kind of shape our understanding of the world as people. Um, so, we, we talked about personality change. Um, I want to talk a little bit about narcissism, and and oh, of you course know, you do. Of course, <laughs> uh, what are you saying?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I should say that the danger. This is of this
0: is <laughs> this is your research.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I am the world's leading expert on narcissism. <laughs> <laughs> I said a funny, um, so, I crushed it. <laughs> I crushed it. I've been, I've been working on that one for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I should say the danger of teaching narcissism is your students automatically believe you are a narcissist. <laughs> can't Let see me why. tell you about narcissism. Um,
0: <laughs> so in, in specifically like, I, I want to know, like, you know, people think and I hear people talk about nar- that's a narcissist right there. That person's narcissistic. Um, what is from your perspective and the scientific person, what is narcissism and uh, how, what what should we know about narcissism?
1: Huh. Um, I mean, I think that the definition is really simple. I mean, there are obviously permutations in terms of, you know, um, how scientists want to define it. Um, but the criteria are really straightforward. They're in what's called the DSM. Um, and, you know, the, I would recommend <laughs> that people probably <laughs> memorize what the, the DSM criteria might be um because if you find yourself in a situation working for a narcissist especially mm. you you might want to find a different job mm. <laughs> um because by definition that person is not going to be um good at fostering you um they're good at, they're going to be good at Um, getting you to foster them, which is kind of the the modus operandi of a a narcissist. I mean, they they believe that they are the best thing or the best person in the room Hmm. to such a degree, in fact, that they know um, that they're narcissists. It's not like it's a mystery. And even when confronted with the fact that they're narcissistic, they're often prone to say, yeah, 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 of course. (laughs) And when you realize how great I am, you will agree that I'm great also. <laughs> and so it's not like they're, I mean, there is kind of some popular notions of them being you know, not aware of these things. They're aware of it. They know mm-hmm. and understand. And they believe, they truly do believe that they are the most important person. In the room. They have this grandiose sense of self-importance they they're preoccupied with power and with success this is where if you're working for them it could be a really bad thing or it could be a good thing if you attach yourself to their cape as they fly off to their trajectory and they're successful you can go with them you're always going to have to be in their service of course you have to service their ego and service their yeah. accomplishments and you're not going to get credit for anything you might do everything for the person and make them successful, but they're going to take credit for what you did. Um, And that's one reason why you might want to avoid them. Um, they think they're special or they're unique in some way. Sometimes they are, right? I mean, yeah, there are lots of people who are very talented and we sometimes mistake their confidence because they're very talented for narcissism. Yeah, There's an overlap there, right? Um, the narcissist might not actually live up to the billing. Um, they mm-hmm. really, really crave other people to validate them. I mean, if you really think you're the best thing in the world, you want other people to tell you you're the best thing in the world. And so, yeah. You know, um, as a subordinate, you're going to be asked to praise them um, to get anything done. And that's that's really quite um, difficult for a lot of people. They're very entitled. Um, they're more than willing to exploit you uh, for their own gain. Um, and so if you do something, they're going to say that they, they did it. They, they don't have much empathy towards other people in the sense of understanding their pain. Hmm. Um, they really don't like other people to be successful in the same space. So if somebody else is gaining the attention of the desired parties or, um, you know, the other bosses or the po- uh, the, the, you know, the po- populace or whatever it might be, the narcissist is not going to like that person no, I and mean, they're going to battle against them. And then they're going to be arrogant um, hmm. yeah, and haughty and and, and you know, These are really unpleasant qualities. So those, is, those are the qualities of a narcissist. I did not um, begin my career studying narcissism. In fact, I was actively... Um, hostile to the idea. Um,
0: huh. and, Why is that?
1: Well, because there are a lot of us in the academic world, um, especially in the, the heavy-duty research world, who are narcissists or share a lot of these narcissistic qualities. I had no, I had enough experience with narcissism in my day job.
2: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> that, you know, we obviously are right. I mean, we, you know, if you think about the typical major research university, we're all hired because we're special. Um, and many of us are, right? We've done special things by definition. We win all these awards and stuff. And you know, therefore, we. it's very easy um, either to believe you were special to begin with or to come to believe you're special because people are telling you you're special. Um, right. And so it is not uncommon for folks in the academic world to, um, let's say share some of these qualities. I had no, really no interest in, in uh, making it a, a focus. I, I turned away a, a number of, of grad students, in fact, were like, oh, I really want to study this. I began studying narcissism because my my area, the place that makes me think the most about human nature is development and and Hmm. why and how people change. And somewhere along the way, we discovered that, oh, narcissism changes quite dramatically across a life course. People become far less narcissistic with age. And that's really interesting. Right. Hmm. For a variety of reasons. But, you know, it's it's a dramatic shift, you know grandparents are not narcissistic typically. Older right. people are narcissistic typically younger right. people are um, by definition and, and and that's that's really cool, right And then oh okay, so then it became something that oh this is interesting. we want to understand why people um, lose their narcissism narcissism with age um, and what the process are. so then we started studying. Um, and, and now I'm the world's leading expert on narcissism.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just a quick little humble flex there. Mm, mm, yeah. mm. Um, I no, think I'm nar- not. <laughs> 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 And
1: I'm not, claim that, but I do like to make the joke.
0: <laughs> narcissism is, you hear people talk about it a lot, um, in the context of generations, specifically that it's younger generations that are narcissistic. I hear this all the time. Um, <laughs> And I'm wondering, is there research to support this claim?
1: There's a lot of research to support the claim that younger people are more narcissistic than older people. Um, That is a fact. Study after study, it's not a a cohort effect, for example. It's not something particular to Gen Z, Gen X, millennials, or any other of those cohorts. Um, But younger people in general uh, are reliably more narcissistic than older people. Um, There is a mistake that some social scientists and most of us um, lay humans then make. We get older and we, we see these young kids running around doing things and we can't help but say, well, they're narcissistic. This is a statement of fact, right? Compared to me, this kid's narcissistic. And then we make the mistake. We then wander mm. into territory that belies another feature of human nature, which is our very, very poor memory system. And we mm. say, They're they're way more narcissistic than I I was at that age. <laughs> right. And then right. we start complaining about. Kids these days. Uh, it's, yes. It's a trope that you can find in ancient Greece. Um, that, you know, older people complaining about younger people, kids these days trope. You can find it throughout history. Older people always mistake younger people as being more narcissistic than they were. We actually have data now. We've actually collected data long enough um, on relevant measures across the last four or five decades to be able to track it and say, hey, is it true? It's not. It hasn't been true. There is one study that purports to have found it. It wasn't adequately done. It didn't sample or get the the adequate amount of data. When we get an adequate amount of data, there's absolutely no cross-generational trend in narcissism whatsoever. It is a flat line. Younger people today are not more narcissistic than you were when you were that age. Um, And that's something that you should grow comfortable with. But it's also one of those Failings of human nature that I don't think the data are ever going to overcome.
0: Right, maybe part of the reason. I wonder if you can speak to this because I always hear about this in the context of social media. Yeah. It's 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 social media is making people narcissistic. Yeah. That they're on well, you know these be- platforms and they're they're behaving in different ways. And I could understand it a little bit because it, it looks like a different thing from an older generation where I, I've never seen this thing before. And yeah. but you're saying no effect there.
1: Nope none whatsoever actually um yeah you know, before we had uh, smartphones we had you know mtv that was going to make kids narcissistic and self-centered and then we had telephones that was making kids narcissistic and you know, you have uh institutional change throughout history uh radio was going to ruin generations and and i think actually um, one of my colleagues claimed that smartphones had ruined a generation of kids, um, which is, huh. i mean—that's bordering on malpractice. There's no data to support that, um, and never has been, and never will be. How you use a cell phone um, could be a problem, um, but cell phones are are just vehicles um, for social discourse. They do make it a little more immediate, but there's no evidence that they've led to things like narcissism changing across different cohorts, to the best of our knowledge. It uh-huh. will not stop people from claiming it because both the press and some social scientists would like to make some money, some coin off of these issues. And so they, they run after the, the clicks, so to speak. And so uh-huh. I mean, I get, so there's certain questions I get year in and year out from the press. Yeah. And this is because they they want to do things that people will read. And in the modern parlance, they will click on it. So I get questions every year like this about narcissism changing with cohorts. In fact, I have an interview scheduled next week, again, um, about are there cohort differences in narcissism? Of course, they're not. Um, and we can publish paper after paper showing that we can show papers that show that and people don't pay attention because it's a really popular idea and people will click on it. And so the press will actually say that. And then there's, of course, some scientists will say that too, write it up in books and scare the bejesus out of parents and, and hmm. yeah, make them frightened. And it takes advantage, I think, of one of the other features of human nature, which is we're not a computer. We're not a perfect cataloging of our history. We're not really good at perspective taking our perspective is driven mostly by ourselves and our personality viewing mm-hmm. out at the world and we're not good at transporting ourselves back 20 years to think about how much of a snot-nosed kid we were when we were an undergraduate um, irritating those older professors at the time um, and I, a- I remember that I'm just- <laughs> <laughs> a younger, i right? remember that i remember that i that remark um yeah so so, I mean, it's it's timeless, right? And there's certain issues like this, birth order is another one where, you know, it's never going to die as an idea because it, it leverages a fact, you know, younger kids are more narcissistic than older people that then we mistake um, because of fuzzy thinking and bad memory as being, ah, it's a generational thing. Got it. And I, I don't, I don't hold out much hope. I would like, I would like to hold out hope that science progresses in a, in a cumulative fashion and that we start paying attention to the reliable data. But uh, <laughs> I've, I've, let's say, grown less optimistic that, that that's the case. So,
0: Got it. Got it. You mentioned birth order. Um, I actually kind of would like to take this opportunity to um, clear the air since I am a middle child and I catch flack for it all the time. Um, I can't but I think help you it, with your family relations. Come on, man, help me out. You know, you, you, yeah, you, you're just, you're just looking to get
1: on your older brother's case. I understand.
0: So, oh, but people do talk about, you know, oh, that's an older child thing. Oh, you're such a younger yeah. child. Oh, you're such a middle mm-hmm. child. Is there yeah. any appreciable effect uh, of birth order?
1: No, no, not appreciable is the key term there. I mean, is there an effect? Yeah, it's an it's equivalent of the effect of taking baby aspirin on cardiovascular disease, which is so small that you need to do it in hundreds of thousands of people to have it have any positive effect. Um, So the the effect is minuscule Mm -hmm. by our standards. And and like narcissism in generations, it's another one of those facts that we see that we can't avoid, which is age differences. (laughs) An older sibling is always older and older people are different than younger people in many different ways. Uh, mm. And it's then, therefore, difficult for us because, again, we can't do perspective taking very well to say, "Okay, is it old, older, or is it birth order that's the cause here?" And birth order is a really fascinating, you know, uh, you know philosophy of science issue because if you look at the original idea, it was Adler who put it forward, and the original tests of it, they were yeah they weren't very impressive and there was actually a report that came out that said yeah look there really isn't much going on here at least for personality and then there was one scientist who wrote a very compelling book um born to rebel that let's say took some liberties with the data um, that had been prior published saying there was very little association with, with personality and then claimed there was a big robust Relationship to personality. So it's in the book. It's a beautifully written book. Many of us really like it. It's called Born to Rebel. And, you know, um, from that day forward, you cannot get the idea out of the, the popular press or out of a popular vernacular. Hmm. But when it comes to you understanding your older siblings or younger siblings, or them <clears throat> giving you flack for being the middle child, no. Um, that is not, um, uh, an answer for why that occurs. And it's most likely just cause you're older or younger.
0: I have it documented now. Thank you. That's you all are. I needed. <laughs> <laughs> <Quote me. laughs> I think it was, it, it was interesting. Um, there, there are a couple of things that I wanted to talk about as well. Uh, that were just about, you know, personality psychology and, and how, um, you know, it it should inform our understanding, uh, like as individuals, as we go about our daily lives. Um, I'm also kind of curious about what are the things you get emails about the most? I think you mentioned that, you know, you get lots of emails about narcissism and these cohort differences. What's another thing that you get emailed about a lot that you would like to just kind of clear the air about, like regarding personality psychology?
1: Well, I mean, as of late, you know, the personality change question has come up because we've been doing a lot of work on, on whether you can actively change your personality. So uh, there's some recent articles, one in The Atlantic that was brilliantly re- written by a woman who's actually taking comedy courses to try to change her personality. Um, and it's it's one of the funniest articles I've ever Seen written about my field, and I would recommend it, but both because it gives you a really nice overview of the field, and it does so in, in an entertaining fashion. <laughs> um, and I w- would not be able to say or describe the field better um, than how she did, and do so and make you laugh at the same time.
0: Fantastic! Uh, so I, I did, we can actually we can actually post a link to that um, along with the, the podcast episode. So thank you.
1: Yeah, Olga Olga Kazan is the name of the author. She's she's brilliant. Um, so I mean, you know, as of late, and this is the way you're you're you know, career works, you publish papers and and you get, um, let's say, queries about the, the articles. And we've done a, a number of articles in the last few years where we created apps to change personality traits. We did therapeutic interventions to change personality traits. We've been publishing these and showing that, yeah, you know, you can actually change your personality. Whether you wanna do it or not, different question. Um, so, you know, so obviously given what you do, that drives a lot of it. Um, I think it was funny, uh, you know, back to what we've talked about: narcissism and and birth order. At one point, I published two papers simultaneously. One on narcissism, really, you know, nothing really, you know, great, not earth-shattering. Like, oh, younger people, older people. Is, it has some potential positive qualities for younger people, great. And then the other paper was, look, I can predict when people are going to die from what they say about themselves on their on a personality inventory, hmm. which I I kind of thought was kind of more important. <laughs> Right, I mean, for me, it's a, it's, it's a frightening finding at some level to know that I can give you 10 adjectives when you're 55 and based on your answers to those adjectives, I can predict how long you're going to live. Is it a good prediction? What do you, what do you mean by a good prediction?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, is it, is it, Uh, is it, is it like, um, a strong prediction? It's as
1: strong as uh, many of the other things that we think
0: Hmm.
1: predict something like longevity, uh, how educated you are, how smart you are, other qualities that we obsess over, how hostile you are. This is looking at conscientiousness, by the way. Um, It's even equivalent to many of the physical things that we obsess over, including some aspects of cardiovascular disease, like blood Hmm. pressure. Um, So it's, it's, let me frame this a little bit, but say that, nothing predicts mortality or longevity well. You know, all the effect sizes are small. Conscientiousness and personality in general is, is just the same size as many of the other factors that we um, obsess over when it comes to something like health and, lo- and longevity. And so from that perspective, the, the effect size is huge mm. as it's just as important as most of the other things that we spend millions, billions of dollars on um, to try to make better. And you know, I thought that was—I mean, that to me is flabbergasting, right? Huh. That that's the case. And when those two p- papers hit, I got call after call about narcissism, <laughs> and <laughs> thought about our, our now newfound ability to predict how long you're going to live.
2: Got it. Got <laughs> I was it. It's like,
1: huh? Okay. And that sent a pretty strong message <laughs> that huh. um, what what we are as a populace interested in might not be the thing <laughs> that is the most important. So,
0: well. Considering that distinction, um, what would you say as, as a, as an expert would be one of the things that would be really helpful, maybe if even people aren't aware of it, for them to know about personality as it relates to their, to their daily lives? Oh, interesting.
1: I mean, I I would prefer that people know it exists. I would prefer that people don't, um, treat it like a sideshow and a carnival, which it often is, right? Um, and I understand why. I mean, everybody and their mother's uncle wants to make up a, you know, their own little measure, throw it up on the, a website and you take it and you find out which Hogwarts house you're in or, or you know, w- which person you're like. And so it's used as a vehicle in a way that's not a scientific approach um, and exploits uh, another feature of human nature, which is that we're very curious about who we are. Hmm. Um, and so, I, I would hope that we could take it at least seriously enough to say, okay, you know, let's let's give people the tools to find out who they are, um, and then use that information to better, you know, figure out how they could live their life um, in, in a in a better way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, that's taking the field seriously enough to not, let's say, belittle it. Um, and that could be as simple as like finding out who you are on a Big Five measure or on something more comprehensive learning to accept those features um and yeah, come to terms with the fact that that's the way you are um, I, I usually recommend that people do that in the company of others who are supportive because sometimes the information might not be positive right hmm. uh, yeah back to narcissists uh, my friends in 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 the clinical fields will tell me that when they get a narcissist in their their practice oftentimes the The progress is slow, and and they can get the narcissist to realize they're narcissistic. And the reaction at that point is usually anger, because hmm. um, yeah, either they don't believe <laughs> uh, this, or they're they're still kind of angry that people don't realize how great they are. Um, and so it it doesn't result in a lot of positive hmm. change. And there's certain qualities that we might possess that we might have focused on as def- definitional to our. our our character that yeah you know, when we're confronted with might not look so good right so it's good to do that in the company if somebody can handle that but then you know once you have that you can then understand you know how the world works easier or harder for you i mean mm-hmm. people who are or who are, you know anxiously introverted um yeah you know, don't you know find other people uh, as comforting as the extroverts do and right. that's gonna that's gonna tailor their world in the way they they work um and, you know, how they fit into cultures, you know, the American culture, for example, is one of you know, supporting extroverts, right? You should be extroverted and it's better to be out right, there and, right. and be in a space. And that, that puts an unfortunate demand on, a, on an introvert. And if they're anxious about it, it just causes them to suffer. Um, right. Needlessly so, because you, you know, introverts have friends and they have all the things that extroverts mm-hmm. have, but they have a very particular way of doing it. So, understanding the style that you have in relationship to your world through your personality it would be, I think, constructive for people to, to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, understanding how that might affect your relationships and your work, you know, love and work being the two major things. Are, is good. I mean, we already kind of do that institutionally, right? We we make our, our high school students take you know, vocational interest um, inventories, which are part of the broader definition of personality, because we know it's really good for people to go into careers that they're interested in and they like. Um, right. It's not a simple thing, but it, we, we give that kind of information. There's no reason why we can't do that with the entire um, Penoply of individual differences that we study and, and give people more information about who they are and how that might play out um, in their future. Um, mm-hmm. Before you even get to the idea of, okay, should we change personality or not? Right. Um, because, you know, sometimes I think the the answer is too often at that individual level, like, ah, you know, we need to teach kids to be self-controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, at a young age, and I mean, this is a relatively common perspective, for example, currently in economics and in some educational science areas that you know, we need to work on these, these mm-hmm. social emotional skills and kids teach them when they're eight to be self-controlled because that's going to play out better um, as they get older. Um, mm-hmm. And then this ignores c- certain things like, uh, you know, the, self- the self-controlled kids in uh, middle school and high school they get ostracized by everybody else cuz they're not cool.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, they do great when they reach adulthood, but you're going to make them suffer for at least 6 to 8 years in high school. For what reason? You know, for and, and you really do have to ask the, the reason. For what reason do you demand that a 12-year-old have the self-control of a 25-year-old, right? Right. right. And you, I think society and ed, and societal institutions like education can ask questions like, is it appropriate for me to channel somebody at that age, punish them for having certain qualities, uh, reward them for having others, when I have the wherewithal to change the institution so that I don't punish that individual difference, right? right. Um, I think about it, in, you know, if you look at different educational systems, the US has got a very forgiving educational system. You hmm. can fail many ways along the way and get back on the track. Some of the European tracks, for example, no, you know, if you don't have your your act together by age 10, you're tracked in a way that's going to impact your future quite dramatically. Hmm. That's a choice that societies can make that say, I'm going to reward the individual differences of a 10 year old when it comes to their future potential. Um, And, you know, societies have the the, wherewithal to have that conversation, but they also have the wherewithal to say, well, you know, we know that people develop with time. We know that personality can be changed. We know that we can create institutions that don't punish people, right, hmm. for not being self-controlled when they're twelve. Don't throw them in jail just because they make a mistake. Um, don't you know throw them out of school just because they make a mistake, or try to, to provide support systems around them if they do make mistakes. If that's the result of them being impulsive, for example, and then help them. You know, a lot of people who are impulsive really want to help or get help, and so we can, but don't don't inadvertently strike the cat or cast the die at that point um, right, that right. guarantees their future because they possessed a certain individual difference at that point in their life um, right. and, and then make things next to impossible for them because I think that would be a mistake. Right. So I'm, I'm saying simultaneously take the the stuff we know seriously enough to use it to help people live better, but also to understand that we shouldn't structure society um, in a way that punished them inadvertently um because of that and, and I want that's t- it's taking it's taking the field seriously in two ways right um mm-hmm. and I think that's not you know, oftentimes we the dialogue at this stage, at least within the social sciences, is this dichotomy of, you know, well, individual differences, you know, if you if you think they exist, you're blaming the victim. And then, you know, you're just a mean person and you're a right winger and you're 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 conservative and this is all bad. So I've got lots of colleagues who actually still question my ideological leanings because I study personality, which is a mistake. Um, and they make assumptions and then they go to an extreme on the other side and say, I don't need to pay attention to individual differences. We just need to make the situation different for people. And that's all that we need to do to make things better. And no, the answer isn't that. So I'm not here saying that personality is everything. I'm not here saying situation is everything. I'm saying let's take both seriously. Right. Because if you take them seriously, which is, I think, the fact of human nature that individual differences exist and they persist, um, then we might actually come up with conditions in which people might thrive a little bit better
0: right i i think that we you know had previously talked about this before um about how our society could do a better job at considering the different kind of personality profiles that exist within you know the constituency and saying you know maybe we should consider you know how to create opportunities or situations or structure education vocation in ways that more align with you know these personalities um in what ways could we do a better job of doing that? And we don't have to talk about it for super long, but I'm just kind of wondering, you know, if, if society were a person and you could say, hey, you need to you need to think about this a little bit better. Um, what would you, how would you advise them in there?
1: I'm I'm at a loss at the moment because I just kind of um, talked a little bit about it in that last section. So, um, so let me think if I have uh, something
0: else to say. You have a certain area. So, yeah. so we, we, um, I mean, we, we talk talked about before? it, like, let's, let's think about it. Um, so you talked about it a little bit, I think in, in the context of, of education, um, and about making decisions as you're developing, what about in the, in the context of, of, uh, work and love, uh, two of the, the big things you, you previously alluded to, um, in what ways could we structure our, our vocations, uh, our, our industries in ways to, to better accommodate, um, or consider the different kinds of personalities that exist. Uh.
1: Well, I mean, you could take away the arbitrary structures that we use for identifying status um, in workplace settings. I mean, we're wrestling with that a little bit right now, for example, with our, you know, are you going to be working in person or working at a distance? Mm. Um, and yeah, uh, taken at a pragmatic level, there's hardly any reason to come to a, let's say a uniform policy. Um, because if you want to accommodate um, different perspectives, um, then let's say the options now when it comes to work and working at home and working in a hybrid model or working all exclusively at home are quite phenomenal, right? Where before mm. it was like, you know, we had things like FaceTime and you had to, you know, be in front of the boss and show them that you were working hard and do these things. And that definitely rewarded the extroverts, it definitely rewarded the people with conditions that, um, uh, allow them the freedom um and this is not personality but like you know people with families they are the, the folk with with young kids during the pandemic are, are you know it's under such duress because they have kids at home right um they, they they still have kids at home when they were doing work but you know what do you do for those folks to accommodate or make a situation um, mm-hmm. so that they can still do and contribute to work um but then you know not punish them so to speak Right. Um, and so i think you know the, the way we, we structure work um, tends to do let's say somewhat arbitrary rules because we think it's important that everybody have you know face time in front of the boss everybody report at a certain time because they have to be controlled um and you know there are lots of people who you don't need to control because they're more conscientious than you <laughs> and right. those folks right. are gonna, they're going to get their work done no matter what finding out who those folks are is you know, usually a priority for businesses um mm. but then you know uh, how do you help the folks who maybe don't have that kind of discipline that still be contributors, right? Um, mm-hmm. find a niche where um, their um, inability to get in on time or, where something like working at home, you know, uh, that yeah. that makes the work world a completely different place for those folks right. you, know, you have all those stories about well if you can't get here on time you know, right right obviously some jobs you have to be there right you know your service industry or your manufacturing or something right you have to be there on the shop floor but yeah you know, a lot of work no um and so you don't you don't have to punish the people who have you know um, problems with their clock management um if it is the case that they can get the work done at any time they want to while they're at home right
0: we often hear about um i mean when i think about vocations and you know do they fit what you want and uh, i often think about differences between you know uh, white collar and blue collar jobs and you know it's part of our you know history that we exported a lot of um, manufacturing jobs from this company in the in the 70s and 80s um how does that bode
1: i mean there's there's two social policies um Got implemented at least during my lifetime that showed a, a stark naivete about human nature, and also just not paying attention to the science. Right again, not taking these things seriously. So, No Child Left Behind was one law like this, and then the the move to gut manufacturing jobs um, in the United States and export them. You know, inadvertently, you know, alienated a bunch of people who, on the vocational interest side, have you know what we call realistic and conventional interests these right. are people who like to work with things and they like to work with their hands and they're they're often amazingly talented and they're artisans at that and when bill clinton and other politicians said ah we need to pay attention to our businesses who want to make things cheaper um let's export these jobs did so without considering that they were alienating a whole swath of of humanity hmm. that really wasn't well suited to customer service jobs or um, management jobs or white-collar jobs or, you know, um, jobs to code in in computer science because they wanted to work their hands. Hmm. And, you know, it's not... There's no reason to alienate people, right? You have a choice. Um, But they they in the conversation at the time was like, ah, this is good economic policy. It's the you know the laissez-faire model of economics where we should let businesses do what and the market do what it needs to do. We don't have to be such you know naive slaves to you know the market. We could actually ask, okay, how are humans structured? Well, we know. That humans come with different interest profiles and different skill sets. One of them is manifest in this way. If we do this and we get rid of all the manufacturing jobs, what are we going to do with those folks? And to come along and say, ah, all we uh, they just need to take a coding class and they'll be fine. No, because that's not <laughs> right. what you know, that's not what they're going to do. So we we were incredibly insensitive and unempathetic to the reality of human nature, which is expressed in these vocational interests. The the No Child Left Behind was the same thing. Um, the No Child Left Behind law was, was said that all these kids are supposed to be trained to you know, a certain level of proficiency within a 10-year period, ignoring the fact that there are ability differences, also interest differences, and and our our prime directive in in most of our educational systems are are very traditional cognitive white collar type things. Again, not vocational. Right. Right. And we said, I don't care what you're like or what you're interested in. You have to get these smarts and you have to do it on my time horizon. Right. And, you know, you don't hear people talking about it because it failed. And why did it fail? Because it, again, ignored human nature. One feature of it being you can change people, but you're not going to change them overnight. Right. And right. and there are still people who believe that you can. There's still people who believe there are other factors that contribute to it. Um and I'm not going to dispute that. There are lots of things that go into making the system unfair. But those are two examples of social policies, which by the way they were created, ignored the individual differences that existed and did so to their detriment and to our detriment. I mean, I think a lot right. of the strife we've had in our society in the last decade or so has emerged because a lot of, especially men who used to do realistic jobs, don't have options anymore. Right. And if they did, they probably wouldn't be as upset. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: and, makes yeah. Which, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about uh, a lot of the different ways in which um, personality can kind of shape our understanding of, of our, our world as, as people. We've talked a little bit about some of the broader, you know, how we as society should consider um, some of these personality related issues. I wonder if um, you could comment on the way in which personality psychology can inform our our duty as
1: parents? (laughs) Well, I'm not going to change any of the responsibilities you have (laughs) as a parent. I think that, well, every generation has has its own um, approach, I suspect. And we are in what we we think of, I guess, as the helicopter parenting uh, or the involved parent, uh, to to give a less pejorative description of it, Um, which is as opposed to when I was young, um, where basically yeah, you just ignored them. <laughs> and They ran like wild, wild creatures out in the, in the woods, which we did. It's a lot of fun. Um, but I think about some of the dangers I put myself in and my neighborhood. I think I shudder. Um, but now, you know, we're, we're, we're involved in our kids. That's where we're supposed to be. And we, we have these changes in terms of our parenting values each generation. I think, you know, the other um, myth or the other uh, empirical um, issue that I have with the field is that, that there's Not a lot of evidence that what we do to our children shapes their personality traits. Hmm. Um, It's not that parents are unimportant. Parents are incredibly important in many different ways. Um, And first of all, don't harm your kids. Don't do anything stupid and extreme um, because those things do affect kids. But in talking about the normal spectrum of parenting, we spend a lot of time obsessing over how we treat our kids, you know, what approach are we permissive? Are we disciplinarians? Is it better to be permissive? Is it better to be disciplinarians? Is it good for women to work? Is it bad for women to work? Is it good for men to do this? Is it bad for men to do this? Because it's gonna affect their kids, right? We, ha- we have a naive assumption that everything we do as parents is going to leave an indelible mark on our kids' personality. Mm-hmm. Guess what? It doesn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so so my, you know, my, my argument for, for that space is for parents, um, You have the responsibility regardless of what happens. Right. Um, But you probably have almost no authority (laughs) Um, and and very little effect um, on how your kids end up. Um, At least your effect is no different than birth order or other types of, of experiences that your child is going to have. And given that fact, you should keep that in mind and be both forgiving of your kids, and yourself in that space, right? Right, If you happen to have a kid who's the opposite of you, you're an extrovert and your kid's an introvert, you know, dragging them to social interactions willy-nilly without any empathy for them is not a good thing. You're gonna cause them a lot of duress. You should understand that. (laughs) And you should understand that your attempts, especially if it's done with insensitivity, which it often can be, won't be successful. So if you wanna do it, we get back to what we talked about in terms of changing personality, right? How are you gonna do it? You've taken consideration where that person's at, you move them into a space that rewards who they are and moves them, nudges them to the side in a way that's supportive. It's hmm. kind of not the typical conversation we have about parents. It's like, you shouldn't do this because your kids will end up being this, right? And you know, right. it's like, whether it's, you know, you should paddle your kids or not paddle your kids or read to them or not read to them, or, you know, all these things we imbue with huge significance in terms of how they end up. Um, and at least from my vantage point, those things we do have proximal relationships to the way your kids are experiencing the world, but not long-term effects hmm. on And that's, you know, that's my parlance is the long-term effect. How do you get to 18 with the personality you have? Um, Parents are part of that picture, but a very small one. And if that's the case, then we should probably be more forgiving (laughs) of both parties, the kid and the parent um, in in understanding how that works.
0: I really like that message and coming at it from the other side as a, as a social psychologist that often, you know, fetishizes the impact that environments have on who we are and how we behave. There is a, a really grounding and I think loving message there and kind of accepting who people are kind of at their, at their, you know, at at their, core and and not worrying too much about, you know, should I change them or what can I do to change them or how can I change people as a whole? Um, I want to ask also about, um, you know, we, we have talked a little bit about the impact, uh, that personality um could or, or, or might have on on society um the ways in which you know we could maybe think about society and its structure differently to accommodate what we know about people and their personalities um do you feel like the academic institution does a, a good job with this and if not could it do a better job somehow
1: good job that's an interesting question i mean the, the, i think the You know, so we we kind of know the trajectory of the life course, right? And we know that young adulthood, especially the transition from adolescence into um, young adulthood is kind of a key developmental space. Hmm. And then the question has to be, are are the experiences we are providing in higher education, for example, um, a positive force in that space? I think we assume that it is. I don't think we know. be honest with you, whether that is true. I mean, for example, with the pandemic, there was a very strong press to get back to normal and to get (laughs) students back in the classroom because, quote unquote, we know that those experiences are critical for their development. Right? Actually, we don't know that. (laughs) Um, We haven't studied it in a way that would inform higher education policy. We all know that these skills and these individual differences are important we all know that we want to contribute to them sometimes we think we do things to them one of the most common tropes for professors is in our teaching statements we always say that our our goal and what we achieve is to make our students think which is comforting to say but we don't know actually Mm. because we never measure it we never assess it Um, and so we really actually don't understand whether the experiences we're providing within an institution of higher education, facilitate these things. We've done research on this, and I was was rather angry with the Economist for this one, because if you look at the study we produced, we showed that students who actually started a labor market experience had an accelerated personality change profile. Hmm. They became more conscientious faster. Um, than the students who are in a regular educational setting. And one of the features of a regular educational setting is that we make it, in many respects, a safe psychological space, right? Explore while you're here, check these things out, I'm going to put some demands on you, but not a lot. In fact, I'm going to give you a tremendous amount of autonomy. You don't show up to class, your choice, right? And so we we don't fire you, <laughs> right. you don't show up to class. Um, and we provide all these other kind of growth opportunities, which are fun um, for students to do. They may not actually participate in them, but we provide them. So I think as an institution, we are well geared for, for addressing this. But I don't think we do so systematically. We don't think concretely about what it is that we're doing and how it's going to affect them.
0: What about the ways in which the academic, you know, we as, as academics can kind of shape other parts of society? And do you think we're using the understanding that we have of personality psychology to do that in a good way? And if not, could we do it better in terms of jobs and relationships and civic institutions? Just thinking broadly about the impact that we could have. I
1: don't know, Pete, that one's too big for me. Um, So beyond what I've talked about before, where you you get to understand who you are in a more constructive fashion, use that information to, let's say, understand how you view the world, um, to understand how you relate to the world. Um, Yeah. Mm, Yeah. You know, there's lots of things we could do, but nothing comes, nothing brilliant comes to mind.
0: If there was one thing that you think we could do differently, a little bit better.
1: Uh, Sorry, Pete what are you trying to get
0: out of me? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I guess sometimes it, it feels like, you know, if, if your goal is to, um, you know, have a, a positive impact on society, you know, you, you might not necessarily get as large of an impact or as, as, you know, as broad of an impact as you might, as you might want um, as an academic, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I know that some people have felt that way and they say, yeah, I really like, you know, being in positions where I can make make changes and, and, you know, see myself impact society. That's obviously a particular value that certain people have. But I, I also wonder, you know, if, if we have this really cool understanding of ways in which we can make, you know, the society or the world a little bit of a better place, and you feel like eh, maybe we could do it a little bit better in this domain. I'm always just kind of curious to see where people think a little improvement could be made. Maybe there's not. Yeah. I mean, you know,
1: like, well, like we talked about, you know, taking it seriously enough so that you try to understand it and how it does affect things i mean there is a truism in um and this may be one reason why i'm reacting less positively to the question there's a truism in social sciences um, which is expressed on the negative um, side of things with the the phrase the gloomy prospect uh, which is a, a, a conclusion that emerged out of epidemiology which is that trying to predict anything is hard hmm. and the most likely answer to your question about making people successful and work in relationships and health is that lots of things matter and nothing matters a lot
2: hmm.
1: and that seems to be universal if you hmm. bother to look in an unbiased fashion at the data it's not our practice as researchers, because we tend to focus on one thing, personality, narcissism, you know, birth order. And then we run around and we've got our hammer in the world as a nail. And we say, look how important this is. Um, the fact of the matter is personality is no more or less important than conditions, situations, identity you know, and other things that we consider. And it's most likely the case that lots of things contribute to these outcomes. I think that fact is probably more important than saying this thing about personality is something we should focus on because I think that's a weakness in humans that we say, give me the easy and the one-shot answer and I'll invest all my money there. Hmm. Reality is most of our questions um, have answers. The answers, I have multiple small answers um, that need to be taken seriously. And if you did that, you would actually change the way you, you view things and do things. And that's more like, you yeah. know, how we would fund research and how we would right. structure different social policies. If you go into it understanding that it's not going to get solved with boot camps or this intervention or this assessment, and you're just going to be making incremental changes, then you have a different perspective. And I think that perspective is lacking in our social institutions in the sense that if you think things have this complexity and you have no simple answer, you're going to invest a little bit more time-wise and money-wise, and take your time and be a little more patient in how things play out. We're not a very patient society. We want our answers now, and we want them simple. Um, And that's a huge mistake. And I think we suffer repeatedly at the desire to have that kind of answer. And it's the case that social scientists will provide that, and it's a mistake. Um, Because if you look at the data, the data never support that including personality psychology
0: i can't help but think that i did get the, the answer out of you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> took some digging i did uh, um i want to i want to pivot a little bit and we've talked a lot about you know the the, the ways in which um, personality psychology can, can impact our daily lives uh our society um i want to ask them um, some some more general questions just kind of about um yeah, just about a lot of things um when, I, you're an accomplished psychologist can we state that and not, can we acknowledge that if you'd like to I, I do I, I would like to I did I would like to so whenever I, I you know I, for a lot of the, the folks who are looking at you know an established psychologist and we, we may have audience members that are you know they're undergraduates they're um, in college um, maybe they're they're not in college uh, maybe I'd, I'll share this with my with my, my parents for example um, what's something that you could provide is sort of a, well, let me, let me, let me restart this question. Um, success is intimidating. And I would be curious to know, like from your vantage point, what are some of the, the strategies that someone like yourself uses to, to be successful in what they do, even if they're just small nuggets, little habits, um, things that make their day-to-day successes a little easier.
1: Yeah, you know, being a white male and being lucky wasn't bad. Come on, man. (laughs) Um, I I won't back down on that one. Um, So I I think you have to take that into consideration on the on the luck side of things, you know, so I chafe at this question a lot, I mean, um, because you're you're talking to somebody who won the lottery, right? Um, And and so i could lay claim to advice generated from the wisdom of my efforts um or i could acknowledge of course that i lived through a time when for example my field had a renaissance um, Mm -hmm. and suddenly lots of people were interested in it lots of people were doing it and i got to be part of that and that was amazingly lucky like Mm -hmm. incredibly fortuitous when i started out in in my field Almost every grad student was disaffected and bitter at the, the choice they had made. The you know, last person who got a job out of the PhD program had graduated like six years be- before that. You know It was a failing small little area that didn't have any hope. <laughs> mm. And I happened to live through um, a period where the, the field essentially exploded. And it was awesome you know there wasn't there's almost wasn't a question that you couldn't ask that you know, wouldn't be rewarded in some respects. so it's really good to be lucky <laughs> we will we'll not we will we'll not um, yeah argue against that as a strategy it's not something you can actually of course guarantee um so yeah oh, okay okay but I don't but I don't, anyway, but I don't have like little aphorisms like you know neither our lender be, yeah. <laughs> well i I don't think to, I don't think I was looking it. at and and the success part it you know
0: yeah yeah I don't know well I, I wasn't looking for anything as, as broad as that but maybe if there's a small behavioral you know habit that you have um, something that you think makes it a little bit easier to be a little bit better we can also skip the question if you don't feel Blind like
1: persistence there. is also a really good thing I mean you know that is the, I, the hallmark and a puppy—that um, is the hallmark <laughs> of a successful academic—is, is, yeah, sticking to the idea even when you've been told repeatedly it's not a gun. <laughs> so, I think um, that's something to take in mind.
0: Um, sticking with the theme that, uh, sticking with the theme that, success can be intimidating. Yeah. Um, are there, are there particular things that you've struggled with in your professional career?
1: Well, lots of things, man. Can
0: I mean, you tell me what some of them have been?
1: Oh, well, um, like I talked about just, you know, getting yourself organized enough to, to be able to get the job done. Um, trying to mentor people effectively. I mean, well, you, know, it, you know, it is appropriate in some respects that, um, you know, I've had a wide spectrum of individuals in my lab. Um, and they've been a joy, um, but they've also been distinctly different from each other. And that you know leads to challenges that I was not prepared for. So I don't always think I was the best advisor, right? or the best mentor mm-hmm. to people um, because I, I couldn't provide what somebody wanted or needed. Um, hmm. at the time um and you know that that's for me the those are the most salient you know failures isn't the right term but you know let's say poignancies where you understand pretty clearly in retrospect that yeah that person could have done a lot better if i weren't their advisor yeah. hmm. and you know that that's the, those hurt um and you would like to you know be better at those things and and figure out how to do things better in that space Um, but those are the things i think about there are lots of you know ideas that didn't play out um and you know that failed as we went through the process but that's also science Um, and I, i i keenly appreciate the fact that a significant portion of the ideas we try actually don't pan out. That's part right. of the gig. Right. And there's there are lots of those. Um, and so I'm <laughs> more than than happy to say that I failed to find that having too much conscientiousness is a bad thing, for example. Um, which yeah, was one of my favorite findings when I was a lad, but now that I've actually researched it, eh, it doesn't, it's not true. Um, and another popular trope that people think about um, and often mistake. So so I think for me, that you know, and I think this is true of most people, the interpersonal um, issues are often the most salient when it comes to the lack of success and that you would like to go back and tell yourself or tell your advisee at that point, hey, go next door. I think this person's going to be better. <laughs> um, and you didn't have the wisdom or the insight to do that. Got it. I think in terms of you're like, hey, you're you're successful. Let's say you know, as someone who doesn't have any respect for authority, um, please, <laughs> please don't don't don't. I mean, one of the you know the things that I find the most irritating is that perspective. Um, like when students come to me and they do the you know deer in a headlights routine and they don't want to ask questions, they don't want to say things. Please disrespect me. Please hmm. don't you know it, you know. There's nothing better than getting the opportunity to learn from somebody. Hmm. And too often, I think what we do with authority is we think, ooh, I'm inadequate compared to this person. And there's, for me, for example, all I wanna do is learn from other people. And if you don't talk, right, you don't ask questions, and you don't you know, open up because you think I'm this successful dude, that actually makes it worse. I'd much rather have uh, somebody who's contempt for my status um, <laughs> and, and to reach out and talk and question and query and and you know provide uh, data because I want to know. I mean, that's my 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 biggest um, desire in some respects. And oftentimes when we go into a situation and, and status is in the room, we clamp down and we shut down. And that for me is the, one of the more frustrating experiences as a person who's had the good fortune of being successful in their field.
0: Got it. Got it. Um, I want to, I, I, I kind of want to press and, and ask, um, was there ever a time where you felt like as a, as a, you know, psychologist, you weren't going to make it like to never get like, oh man, this is really tough.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, what was like I what? Said, those, those first few years and, and yeah, you know, well, I mean, I was an unspectacular graduate student. Um, I mean, I didn't. You know, I had, and I have, you know, good social comparisons. I have, you know, friends and colleagues who were highly successful who went through the program with me, um, and I was, you know, I wasn't as good as they were. Still, am not in many respects. They wrote better. They wrote more fluidly. They came up with ideas faster. Um, they were smarter on the fly. Um, they produced more in the in the common vernacular, and yeah, during and so I, you know, the message I got a lot as a grad student was, yeah, you're okay. Um, and then when I got out, you know, I got a job, which was cool. But I got a job in Oklahoma, <laughs> which for my California pe- yeah, peeps were they were kind of traumatized by it. We actually found it to be an amazing experience, and I will, will argue to the the end of my days that Oklahomans are way nicer than almost any other populace I've ever lived with, um,
2: hmm.
1: and they were wonderful to us. and And I, I treasure that time. But even that time when I was working and toiling away it was very stressful. I didn't know whether my ideas were going to pay off. I didn't know whether I was going to, you know, get tenure and all those things that you, you so desire at that stage. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was, those were very challenging times and yeah, I run, ran roughshod over loved ones and, um, and students at times because I was stressed out. Yeah. And yeah, that was the reality of that time. So yeah, there, I was not, I did not think from the beginning that I was, you know, a gift to my field that was going to produce all the big ideas. I was curious and toiling away and relatively unimpressive and unimpressed with my con- contribution, and lucky enough to make a few insights that really contributed to how the field thought about things. Um, and mm-hmm. that didn't emerge for a long time. And yeah, it's funny because I, I got to see arbitrary things in play. So I, I was fortunate enough to be hired here at the University of Illinois. And trust me when I say this, my status went up the day that contract was signed. Hmm. When I would tell people, they would ask, Oh, hey, you know, where do you work? I say, Oh, um, I'm at the University of Illinois. They would treat me like a different human. Hmm. Yeah, it was. There are two transitions like that that are really salient. Like when you go from PhD to doctorate, or PhD candidate, you get your doctorate, and you go. Suddenly, students respect you. <laughs> that was. I was like, I'm the same person I was a week ago. Why? Why are you respecting me? When, you know, that was conspicuous. That happened going to Tulsa. That's fine. But when I got the job at Illinois, suddenly my peers, my colleagues, respected me. And it had absolutely nothing to do with my ideas. It had absolutely nothing to do with what I was as a scientist. It was just that I was at an institution. And so we do right. a lot of things like that, that are, are relatively artificial. So, right. but make sure you hit record.
0: <laughs> Done. Um, what's, a speaking of, 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 personality, like change, uh, is there, this isn't about personality, but, um, is there a conviction that you've had that you've changed your mind on as you've gotten older?
1: before, and I can't, you know, nothing comes to mind, sorry, man, um, I, I just, it's too abstract for me, <laughs> um, I, do, I don't have, you know, like, should you treat dogs a certain way, I, I don't have, um, yeah it's funny. i I don't I, I, nothing comes out like this is the way things. I, I guess you know one thing I could say in terms of convictions is my respect for those who are, are religious. Um, hmm. as a as a young um, intellectual who is uh, let's say trying to be abrasive towards the dominant paradigm, my skepticism towards modern religion was deep. Um, I, I have a much keener appreciation and respect for my friends who are religious now. <laughs> Yeah. Um. After watching life play out, um, yeah, they have an enviable um, respite from some of the stresses of uh, the atheist mindset, yeah. um, and that's that's a that's a good thing. Um so I, I guess in that respect, um, I don't know if that's a change in, in conviction, because I'm still an atheist, but um, it's a, it's I'm not a hostile atheist <laughs> anymore. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which which is good. Maybe it's just the change in hostility. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's so many things I've been wrong on, though. So it's not a conviction. I mean, that's it back to the thing about science. Like if you do it right, you're wrong on lots of things. So, yeah, um, yeah but it, was it a conviction that when I was trying the hypothesis out, I would, wouldn't give it that much significance?
0: Yeah, I wasn't uh, necessarily looking for like a work related conviction, though. I mean, yeah, I know.
1: I know there could be relationships and yeah, yeah. kids and, and, and those things. So, yeah. Um, and Brent, and, what gives you
0: hope for the future?
1: Well, I mean, young people, um, it's its wonderful to see generation after generation being the same, which is enthusiastic and energetic and engaged and passionate. Um, and that seems to be true every generation. And it's a joy to watch. Um, and they, they give me hope that we can actually do things um, to make the world a better place, which to be honest with you, I'm, I'm less optimistic about now um, at this stage um, in history than I was before. Um, And the the most hopeful thing is to see young people actually engaging with the same ideas that we did in a way that's actually more constructive and hopefully
0: better. Uh, I I think that's probably um, one of the best notes we could possibly go out on. So thank you, Brent Roberts, for joining us. I really appreciate your time today.
1: Uh, I appreciate the questions and your patience, um, as always, and your interest. And, we're, yeah. and your humor, I, I really like the, you know, I want more humor, Pete.
0: Um, I've never claimed to be funny. I get a, up on stage, but I never claimed to be funny.
1: Stand-up comedian podcast. Maybe,
0: <laughs> <laughs> maybe we can turn this into one of those eventually.
1: Okay, I, I, uh, I'll look forward to that. <laughs>
0: I'll have to ask our, our, our new director what her thoughts are on that, but. Uh, uh, I assume, I, assume I, will
1: not be, I will not be invited back then for that podcast. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, but seriously, thanks for joining us, Brent.
1: Anytime,
2: Pete. Thanks, man.